0: Good morning, brothers and sisters. It is a privilege to be with you this morning. Would you open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter 5? As we continue to worship God this morning, I have to say, I really hope that my voice will last because singing with you guys, it might disappear. It is a joy to sing with you. This church sings very well. Uh, Thank you for those of you who led. I, I really appreciated the singing this morning. But yeah, it's it's a it's a privilege to be here. I'm thankful for uh, Peter inviting me, and just thankful for all of you welcoming me to worship with you. Let's pray one more time as we approach God's word this morning. Lord, we praise you because you are a great and good and gracious King. You do not treat us as our sins deserve. We thank you, Lord, for the reminder from Micah this morning, that you cast our sins under your foot and bury them in the depths of the sea. Who is a God like you? Lord, we we love you, and we thank you that you have given us your word. We are not on our own, just blindly walking our way through life, but you have given us your clear and helpful word, Lord. And I pray this morning that your word would be helpful to your sons and daughters here this morning who are adopted into your family. I pray that it would encourage and help them. Lord, would you give me a mouth to speak what is true, and would you give them ears to hear and obey? We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Friends, have you ever considered the deep connection that there is between suffering and anxiety? Typically when life is going well, we tend not to be as anxious, right? No unexplained medical symptoms, the kids seem to be doing well, bank accounts are in good shape, we're holding a solid job. What is there to worry about at those times? And yet even when life is going well, for some of us, we still battle with anxiety, don't we? And there's many reasons for this, but certainly One of those would be we see the sufferings of other people and we wonder if they will happen to us. Maybe a a friend's wife gets cancer. Will my wife get cancer? Or a co-worker is cut from their job. How secure is my position at my company? Or a relative has a severe reaction to the coronavirus. How would I hold up if I got sick? See, even here, the connection between suffering and anxiety is deep. Uh, Suffering, we could perhaps describe as as this mental response, or sorry, anxiety. We could describe as as this mental response that naturally accompanies suffering. But what happens when we are anxious is we act out possible futures in our minds, right? Possible things that could happen. We say, "What shall we eat?" or "What shall we wear?" Those are the things that Jesus says. Or, but we could extend that list. Where shall we live? or when will this end, or what will she say, or what will I do, or will he be okay, or how will this turn out? We act out these possible futures in our minds. We worry about the present sufferings we are enduring, or about the future sufferings that we might face. And sometimes anxieties spring up for us like a stub toe. They're just all-consuming, it's all you can think of. Maybe a call from a doctor that changes everything. Other times, anxiety is like a throbbing paper cut. It's it's not the only thing you're thinking about, but it's there and it's persistent and it won't go away. Maybe just financial trouble that just doesn't seem to be clearing up for you. So take a moment right now. What anxieties are you currently facing in your life? Whatever it is, whenever it happens, we are all tempted to turn towards anxiety in the midst midst of our suffering, aren't we? We feel alone and vulnerable, betrayed and abandoned, weak and weary, and anxiety is the natural response. And after all, we might say, I'm facing some serious stuff. Is a bit of worrying really that big of a deal? I mean, I'm just a worrier. It's not that big of an issue. But friends, In the worldview of scripture, anxiety is not a minor thing. Jesus himself warned his disciples on several occasions about the dangers of anxiety. Let me just highlight a couple of those for you really quickly. Uh, In Luke eight, in the parable of the sower, Jesus describes how riches and pleasures of life and anxieties choke the word and cause it to be unfruitful in our lives. And fruitfulness in that parable Uh, relates to holding on or enduring in faith. And so anxiety, Jesus says, kills enduring faith. It chokes it out. Just one more example. In, In Luke 21, Jesus highlights carousing and drunkenness and anxiety as things that lead us to be unprepared for the return of Christ. Sufferings enter our lives, we become so consumed with anxiety that we forget about Jesus' return, we forget about the kingdom of God, and we see our lives only through the lens of that specific suffering and the anxiety that it produces. In other words, according to Jesus, left unchecked, anxiety chokes our endurance and destroys our expectancy for Christ's return. Anxiety is an enemy of faith. So how do we deal with our anxieties? When, when the sufferings of life cause us to feel alone and abandoned by God, and we start acting out these possible futures in our minds, where do we turn? How do we please the Lord in those situations? Well, brothers and sisters, this question is exactly what Peter is addressing and what he deals with in this passage. As he nears the end of this letter here in 1 Peter, which is written to a group of Christians who are enduring intense suffering, Peter addresses this issue of anxiety and how it relates to suffering as well, and he gives us instructions for how to please and trust the Lord in these types of circumstances. And in short, what Peter says to us is he shows us that we can trust the powerful God of grace because he cares for us. And he shows us this in three stages that I hope you'll see with me. First, he shows us the God who is above our sufferings. Then he shows us the enemy who is behind our sufferings. And then he shows us the glory that is beyond our sufferings. So first, let's look at the God who is above our sufferings. Look at 1 Peter 5, verses six and seven with me. Peter writes this, humble yourselves, therefore, Under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, notice that verse 6 begins with therefore, which means it's connected to what comes before this section, right? And before this, Peter gives several instructions to the elders of the congregation. Before, he reminds all the others to be subject to the elders. And then he extends that call to the whole church by calling them to clothe themselves in humility. Since God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And with that context, then, Peter now fleshes out what does it look like to humble yourself before the Lord? How do we do this? Particularly in the context of suffering. How do we humble ourselves, put ourselves underneath a God who allows, more than that, who brings suffering into our lives? And Peter offers three answers to these questions in these verses. And these answers are three truths about God. First, he says God is powerful. Second, God will exalt you at the proper time. And third, God cares for you. Those are his three answers for how to trust God. Now, before I show you those here in the text, I want to help frame this by making a connection or drawing a connection between these three things and something that I read a few years ago in a book by Jerry Bridges, who's a great Christian author. And in a book called Trusting God, Jerry Bridges suggests that there are three truths that we need to trust, that we need to believe, if we're going to be able to trust God in the middle of suffering. He says, one, we have to trust that God is completely sovereign. Two, we have to trust that God is infinite in wisdom. And three, we have to trust that God is perfect in love. Now, let me, let me explain this a little bit more. So if you imagine, and we all understand this, this uh, terminology right now, if you imagine that anxiety is a virus, you need three vaccines to counter it. That's what he's saying. And a failure to get any one of these three vaccines is going to lead to big issues. I'm not making a political statement. I'm just drawing an example that we all understand, okay? Okay. <laughs> So let me think with me about this. These three things we need to trust God. If you believe that God is wise and loving, but not sovereign, in the middle of suffering, you're going to believe God has great intentions for my life, but he is just wringing his hands helplessly. And the feeling will be that my life is just spinning out of control. God is not in control of my life. What's happening? If on the other hand, you believe that God is sovereign and loving, but you don't believe that he is wise then you'll believe that God wants to do good and has power to do good, but he has no idea how to do it the best way. And, and you'll feel, God, what are you doing? Why are you doing it this way? What's going on? Thirdly, if you believe that God is sovereign and wise, but not loving, then you will just feel that God is a controlling, cold tyrant in your life, and you will feel bitterness and doubt. God, you even care about me. So you see how you need all three of those things to trust God. So let me ask you, is there one of those aspects that you tend to forget more than others? I think in many churches that emphasize God's sovereignty over all things, which is good and right, I think it's easy to forget the reality of God's love, which makes him seem distant and calculating and just moving our lives like chess pieces. Now look at these verses, and notice how Peter actually draws together these three specific things as he comforts these believers. First, he says in verse 6, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. There is the complete sovereignty. Whatever our situation, whatever our suffering, which is provoking this anxiety, he says we are told to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. This situation is in his control. It's in his hand. Now second, why should we humble ourselves under his mighty hand? He says, so that, here's the reason, at the proper time, he will exalt you. Did you hear that? At the proper time, there is the piece of infinite wisdom from God. God knows the times. He knows the seasons of your life and he in his wisdom knows the proper time to lift you out of the suffering, to exalt you, whether in this life or the life to come, and he also knows the improper time to do that. In his wisdom, he's working all things in your life out according to his timing. And then third, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. There's the peace of perfect love, right? God loves you in the midst of your suffering. And there are some translations that say casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. And I think that's, that confuses things a little bit because these are two different words. The word for wor- cares and cares or anxieties and cares are very different words. It's not saying here you don't need to be anxious. God will be anxious about you instead. That's not what he's communicating. Instead, the word here for God cares for you. Let me show you what it means by showing you other places where it's used in the New Testament. Okay. So in Luke 10... Martha comes to Jesus and says, do you not care that my sister has left me alone? Or in John 10, Jesus says, the hired hand cares nothing for the sheep. Or in John 12, we we learn that Judas did not care about the poor. He only wanted money. Or maybe the most helpful one of all, in Mark 4, Jesus is asleep in the boat and there's this big storm happening and the disciples shake him awake and say, do you not care that we are perishing? You see how that word functions? This is an idea of showing concern for something, taking something into account. God cares for you in the middle of your suffering. See how these three things come together like a triple vaccination against anxiety. God is mighty. God will exalt you at the proper time. God cares for you. And this leads Peter then to address the question of what do we do with our anxieties then? If that's true, how do we deal with them? We may know that those things are true about God, but what do we do when the anxiety attacks? See, as a culture... We do not know how to deal effectively with anxiety or with the suffering that causes it, do we? Uh, recent, just as an example, recently I finished reading a book called My Father's Wake, which is written by an Irishman, of course, because I'm reading a lot of Irish books, just wanting to learn more and understand the culture. I should say my wife is Irish as well. She grew up in, in Dublin. She's an Irish citizen, and that's a big piece of our story as a family of getting there. But Um, Yeah, I've been just learning more, kind of reading more about Irish culture. And this book is by an Irishman who's just wrestling with the reality of death and trying to understand it. Uh, And death uh, is certainly something that we would say causes anxiety, right? Death is the final enemy for all of us. And the author is trying to figure out how, he's wrestling with how Western culture compartmentalizes death, right? So that we don't have to think about it, we don't have to deal with it. Uh, But he, as an author, has been confronted with death his whole life. He hasn't been able to compartmentalize it. He almost died as a child from tuberculosis. He had a brother who died as a young man. And then he became obsessed with death and started traveling around the world just talking to people who had been affected deeply by death. Genocide and famine and these kinds of things. And at the very end, he's just trying to come to terms with death. Trying to find some ground to stand on in the middle of this. And he finds a solution at his father's wake, which if you know anything about Irish culture is kind of this long extended funeral or celebration of life. And and here's what his answer is. Here's how he deals with the reality of death. He says, quote, we need to brace ourselves together on the shore against the mortal wave of death's ocean. That's his answer. Basically, just surround yourself with family and get used to it because death is inevitable. That's his answer. Now, to be fair, that is more thoughtful than many people who just ignore the reality of death because that's what our culture tells us to do. But it just turns death into something inevitable, right? Something that we just better get used to it because that's a reality, so just try to deal with it. Try not to worry about what's bound to come into your life anyway. Friends, that is not how Peter deals with anxieties here. Instead, in light of the mighty and wise and caring God, Peter calls you to cast your anxieties on the Lord. And that word for casting is used only one other place in the New Testament. It's used in Luke 19 when the disciples throw their cloaks on the colt during the the, uh, triumphal entry when Jesus comes into Jerusalem. It's this idea of throwing something onto something else. And that's what Peter is saying. He's calling us to take those anxieties that weigh us down because of our sufferings in life and throw them onto the Lord. Instead of bearing the weight of these things ourselves, we in faith throw them onto the Lord. The Lord is in control. The Lord will exalt me in the proper time. The Lord cares for me. Now, how do we do that practically? I think the most simple and kind of obvious answer is to just come up with a short prayer or memorize a couple verses of scripture that that we can just use to cast our anxieties on the Lord when we find our minds starting to spiral, right? Starting to act out those futures and we start to just spiral down. Just some verses, maybe these verses or other verses of comfort for you that, that you can just put back into your mind to remind yourselves. But beyond that, we need to help each other out with this, don't we? We need to remind each other of these three truths, helping each other to take those burdens off of our backs and throw them onto the Lord. If you are bearing anxiety alone, share it with another Christian who can help you throw it onto the Lord. If you know a Christian who is suffering, pursue them, help them, pray for them, remind them to throw that anxiety onto the Lord. So let me ask you, where do you turn when anxieties weigh heavily, many turn to drink or other numbing addictions. Others, maybe of us, turn to less damaging things. We watch TV or we play a game or we listen to the radio or to a podcast. And I want to say, those are good things. It's good to, to rest. We need mental breaks. It's good for us to do things we enjoy with people that we love that help lighten our spirits and just not think about the heaviest things in life all the time. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. But, those things are not good if we are ultimately trying to just forget about our sufferings. Because the thing with suffering and anxiety is, it's right back there when you wake up tomorrow, isn't it? So what will you do when these things finally do catch up with you? When the sufferings can't be ignored? When the anxieties are piling up and staring you right in the eyes? We must be learning and helping each other to throw our anxieties onto the Lord. Well, why is this so important? In the next two verses, Peter gives us an answer, and it's because we have an enemy who is behind our sufferings. And we have some great context with all the singing that we did this morning here about our enemy. This is, this is really setting this up well. Look with me at verses 8 and 9. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Peter reminds us here that not only is there a God who is above our sufferings, but there is an enemy who stands behind our sufferings. This should probably remind us of the opening of the book of Job, doesn't it? Where God is in control of everything that's happening, and yet Satan is entering the scene, seeking permission to bring these sufferings into Job's life to incite him to curse God and die. Now, notice with me these first two commands given at the beginning of verse 8 Be sober minded, be watchful. Sober mindedness there brings in the imagery of drunkenness, doesn't it? To have a sober mind is to have a mind that's not dulled by alcohol or something similar. Instead, it's to possess your senses. That's a sober mind. You see, you hear, you think, you make decisions clearly. Watchfulness brings in the imagery of sleep. This word could just be translated, be awake. Don't be drifting off to sleep. Notice what's going on around you. We need minds, Peter is saying, that are clear and minds that are awake. Why? Your adversary. We go through life, brothers and sisters, with an adversary who opposes our faith. Look at how he's described here. A roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Our adversary's intention, his purpose, is to swallow people up. Now this image is perhaps not as vivid for us in North America who see lions in zoos with barriers between us and buy them as cute stuffed animals for our babies, right? Maybe some of you are from cultures or from places in the world where a lion is a much more vivid image to you. Or maybe for some of us, we have encountered in Canada a a bear in the wild and just that thrill of fear that runs through you at the raw power that you see in front of you that, that this animal could destroy me in any moment. Maybe, if, even if you haven't seen that, you've watched Planet Earth or some, a similar documentary like that, and you have seen the power and skill and cunning and terror that is a lion. Now, this is a familiar verse to us, isn't it? But we often quote it in specific contexts dealing with sexual sin or addiction or the like. And that is true. Certainly, the devil does seek to swallow us up in those ways. But Friends, what is the specific context here? Anxiety in the midst of suffering. That's what we're dealing with here. We will see more evidence of this soon, in just a second. Now, maybe you've never associated Satan with your anxieties, Right? Our culture just views anxieties or things that happen to us as cosmic accidents, right? And so we don't have much control over things that happen to us. It's just life in a dog eat dog, survival of the fittest world. And so when suffering comes and we respond with anxiety, it just feels natural to us, right? And Peter reminds us here that no, we have an adversary out there who is seeking to devour us through our anxieties. Remember, we said earlier that Jesus teaches that anxiety chokes our endurance and kills our expectancy for Jesus' return. And both of those things sound like things that Satan could get behind, don't they? But we don't need to look outside this passage for evidence for that. It's right here in the next verse. Follow me with, or follow with me on this. In verse nine, Peter goes on to instruct us how to respond to Satan. He says, resist him, oppose him, Stand against him. Don't just lie down and let him devour you. And then he goes on to describe that resistance in two ways. In order to resist Satan, we need first to have a specific orientation towards God. And then second, we need to know something about the church. So first he tells us resist him firm in faith. And that calls us back or brings us back To the first point, Satan would desire us to think that God is not in control, that he doesn't know what is best for us, and he doesn't care for us, right? And faith resists that and says, no, I know what is true about God. But look then at what Peter says next, knowing, what do we need to know? That the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world, Your brotherhood throughout the world is, of course, the universal church, right? And we are to resist Satan by knowing that they are experiencing the same kinds of suffering. Now, how does that work? Here's what I think Peter is saying to us here. When you are suffering and when you begin to give yourself over to anxiety, the devil is seeking to devour you by getting you to feel alone. No one cares for me. No one is here with me. No one has experienced something like this. Where is God in this? I'm all alone. And Peter steps in and says, no, no. What you are experiencing is happening to your brothers and sisters all around the world. Don't listen to Satan. You are not alone in this. Friends, there is very relevant application for us here in a ch- as a church, both as a local church here and as a universal church. As we journey through life together, we must not let each other think this way. We must not let others feel alone in their suffering. When we know of trials that other people are enduring, anxieties that they are facing, we must stand with them, telling them, assuring them that they are not alone. God has not abandoned them. They are not the only one in the world facing something like this. Think back to that imagery of the lion. If you've ever seen a nature documentary, who does the lion go for? The strongest bull in the herd? Of course not, right? The the lion goes for the weak, the young, the immature, the vulnerable, the isolated, and the sick. A lion knows that those are his most easy targets. And, And Satan is much more clever than a lion. Friends, we must be looking for those people among us, the weak, the immature, the vulnerable, the isolated, the struggling. In other words, all of us at different times of life, right? And we must be seeking those people out intentionally, knowing that they may be particular targets for Satan and reminding them they are not alone in this battle. So if any of you here are suffering alone, beginning to feel these things, giving yourself over to your anxieties, I encourage you, speak with a trusted friend. Or speak with your pastor Your brothers and sisters around the world are experiencing these kinds of things too. Part of life's journey for Christine and I involved uh, multiple miscarriages before Owen was born, our first child. And as we began to share about these things with other people, we had multiple couples say to us that they had experienced the same and never told anyone. Many of them for years had never told anyone about the miscarriages they'd experienced. Friends, don't suffer alone like that. Share your burdens with other people so that they can help bear them with you and remind you to be sober and alert to Satan's devices and so they can help you throw those anxieties onto the Lord together because he cares for you. Now, with all that said, just knowing that other people are experiencing the same kinds of sufferings doesn't give ultimate hope, doesn't it? Does it? Suffering together is better than suffering alone, but it's still suffering. And it doesn't sound like much of a final redemption to me. Is there an end to our suffering and our anxiety? Well, we've seen the God above our sufferings and the enemy behind our sufferings. And let's turn now finally to the glory beyond our sufferings. Look with me at verses 10 and 11. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The first thing to notice here is that unlike in the first two sections, there are no commands in this section. As Peter turns his focus onto the coming glory, he just spills out encouragement and affirmation. Commands and obedience are not the final word for us. The God of grace is the final word for us. And this is the way that he introduces this section. It's reworded a bit in our English, but God as the God of all grace. We suffer, we struggle with sin, we often give ourselves over to anxiety, don't we? But God does not run out of grace. And notice how he goes on to describe the Lord. The one who called you to his eternal glory. Calling reminds us of God's past grace, doesn't it? How when we were still dead in our sins, unable and unwilling to come to God, he called us. And what did he call us to? Peter says eternal glory. Life may be filled with suffering that provokes our anxieties right now, but God's intention for us is to share in eternal glory. But what's the assurance that we will receive that glory. I mean, if we look around our lives today, most of us see anything but glory. Well, notice those next two words in Christ. We are tempted to look at our circumstances and, and doubt that God cares, right? To doubt his wisdom, doubt his powerful hand. Suffering abounds, sin abounds, circumstances worsen. And we say, where is the care that we are promised in verse seven? Friends, where do we see God's care, his grace on full display? In Christ. Where do we see his wisdom on full display? In Christ. Where do we see his power on full display? In Christ. In the trenches of our lives, he is the one to whom we look. The savior of the world, the savior of the church, the friend of sinners, the suffering servant who knows our pain and defeated it once for all on the cross and now lives to intercede for his people. We are members of Christ's body, and so if God raised Christ from the dead and brought him to eternal glory, he will surely bring us to eternal glory as well. And then notice now how Paul contrasts the God of all grace and eternal glory with the reality of sufferings in life. He says, after you have suffered a little while. Peter wants us to see our sufferings in perspective. Just to illustrate this, my, my son, as a 20-month-old little boy, loves playing with little trucks, of course, because what little boy doesn't? And a couple weeks ago, I was taking him for a walk, and we came across a real living bulldozer. A massive bulldozer. And I was just... I thought he was enjoying it. And then I looked down, and my little son was literally shaking in fear from the raw strength and power of that bulldozer shaking the earth. This full sized machine. And it's like Peter is taking us here and saying, You think this bulldozer is big? So far, it's all you've ever known, but you should see the real one. Peter says, You think this suffering is big? I know so far, it's all you've ever known. But you should see the eternal glory that's coming. Friends, our suffering will not last forever. God is not calling you to trust him eternally with your suffering. It's just for a time. It's just for a little while until your faith becomes sight. Brothers and sisters, this time of faith is coming to an end soon for you. Remember, faith does not carry on into heaven. Just think of the joy of faith no longer being a part of your life. All of God's promises right there before you, all of the time, forever. No more room for doubts, no questions, no struggles, no wondering, no anxiety. Your faith is sight. That is what is in store for you after just a little while of suffering. And as you journey your way there, you're not left to your own devices. Look up here ends this verse. This God, the God of grace, the God who called you to his eternal glory, he himself will restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. This, brothers and sisters, is how God cares for you right now. Even today, in the middle of your suffering and anxieties, God promises he will mend and support and strengthen and establish you. So come, God calls to you, all you who feel broken, He will mend you. Come all who feel shaky. He will support you. Come all who feel weak. He will strengthen you. Come all who feel like their life has no foundation. He will establish you. And not only in this life, but the God of grace will do all of these things, finally and ultimately when he brings you to eternal glory one day. How do we know that he'll do that? Look at verse 11. To him be the dominion forever and ever. That word dominion is actually the same word for power, God's mighty hand back in verse seven. Sorry, verse six. That same God under whose powerful hand today you are humbling yourselves under, to that God belongs power forever and ever. Amen, says Peter. His power is arrayed in all of its eternal glory for you today, in your suffering. So brothers and sisters, as you face sufferings that provoke anxieties, remember there is a God above your suffering who cares for you. Remember there is an adversary behind your suffering who seeks to devour you. And remember that there is a glory beyond your sufferings that the God of all grace, the God to whom all power belongs, has called you to in Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you that you care for us. And we pray in the words of that beloved Christmas hymn, from our fears and sins, release us. Let us find our rest in you." Amen.